Hello, Phil Cummins, bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again on Sunday the 28th of February, episode 173. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. I'm Armish Matt. And tonight's guest is a demonologist and the author of two books, uh, A Moment Called Man and The Skin That Crawls. (laughs) Nathaniel J. Gillis, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'll see. You're our, your first demonologist. Yes. We uh, we spoke to Dr. Christy Sumner, uh, I think it was last summer, I think. And uh, mm-hmm. she's a, a paranormal investigator with Soul Sisters Paranormal. And uh, as we were talking to her, she was saying, like, sometimes when they're investigating somewhere, a haunted place or somewhere where there's been, like, some horrific triple murder or whatever, and... Uh, Sometimes they feel like they're out of the depth and they think, right, it's time to call the demonologist. So uh, it's good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's um, it's an honor to talk about this research. You know, anytime I get a chance to talk about my work and others' work, it's other works. It's really it's really a good time. Thank you for having me. No problem. Let's go to let's go straight to the basics. Could you lay out for us what a demonologist is, what your work entails, and then maybe we could go into why you went down this path. Okay, so a demonologist is someone who specializes in the pathology of a demon. So basically, by the time I get into an investigation, it has, the phenomenon has transcended what a normal paranormal investigator would want to deal with. And so a lot of times when I go into homes, you'll see scratches, bite marks, um, you'll have incubi cases, succubi cases, where the spirit will actually literally, it's crazy, it will literally leave semen samples in the bed, which we'll talk about that hopefully later on in the podcast. So by the time I get there, um, I'm looking for rituals. I'm looking for pieces of uh, of the family, like maybe little, like small objects, trinkets that the entity's taken. Um, So so my specialty, unfortunately, the cursing calling, is to study the pathology and the sexual pathology of the demon. So I'm not just someone who studies it, but I'm also one who confronts it in the home. So I hope that sheds a little bit of light into it. Right. So, I mean, how on earth did you get into this? Did you have some sort of personal experience that's thrown you down this direction? Yes, sir. Um, so when I was eight years old, my family moved into a house and we went to the open house. This is very interesting. At the actual open house, my dad led me into my future room and he said, uh, take a look around. This is going to be where you're going to be staying for the next five or six years or so. He said, you know, figure out where you're going to put your bed and your gaming system. He said, uh, me in the meantime, your mother and I are going to go into the living room and talk to the realtor. And so I'm poking around the room. Then I, I just, it was very interesting to me because I was immediately met with a stench. Um, it smelled like human decomp. And so it was pervasive. It was rancid. 
And uh, so I'm looking around and, and finally I just was drawn to the bed. So I got um, on, on my hands and knees and I, I looked and I pulled the blanket up and I was met face to face with a six year old girl. She was wearing a white linen dress. And uh, as soon as we made eye contact, she, she freaked out and shimmied her little body all the way up to the wall. That was a, that was a full bodied apparition. Wow. She didn't belong in the house. And so that was my confrontation with that entity. When we finally moved in, it turned into mutated into shadow figures. Um, there would be a wispy like uh, smoke, like apparition that would kind of weave its way, snake its way into my room at night. So that was my confrontation with evil. And the more I matured in my giftings, my calling, my research, the more I wanted to understand what it was I encountered and help people understand, you know, if they're going through the similar, similar events. Now, if it was me and uh, my dad was looking at this house and that mm-hmm. happened to me, I would be saying, uh-uh, no way, we're not moving there. <laughs> I would be completely terrified out of my wits. Did, yeah. Why did, were you, were you not afraid? I was terrified, but I was forced into a corner. And so I had two choices, be traumatized by the terror or to perceive this phenomenon as a language that I did not yet understand. And so that was more or less my coping mechanism. And so when these events would take place, I mean, there, were, there was one period in my life where I had uh, three or four months of the same nightmare back to back to back. And it was always someone committing suicide. And so, you know, like I said, that was my coping mechanism. I could have easily said, you know what, I need to go get counseling or I need to figure out what's going on or or something. Uh, Or I could have said, you know what, maybe I'm called to understand this, right? Not just what I'm feeling, but why it is that I'm feeling what I'm feeling. And so that's why once I got into the research and poured myself to the literature, uh, I think that's what's really set me apart in some ways. And that I'm not just an experiencer. I'm not a victim, right? I'm looking into what I encountered. And this first apparition, the full-bodied apparition you saw, you mentioned shadow figures after that. Did you see the little girl again during the five no, years? I didn't. I, and I, I think there's a reason for that. I think that that entity mutated, right? I think it mutated like a virus, like a disease. So the shadow figure began when uh, one night I was playing my video game system, And I saw movement out of the corner of my right eye. And I looked out my window, which was the window seal started at seven foot. And uh, I'm looking, I'm just, my eyes are kind of adjusting to the darkness. And as they did, I could see the the outline of, I mean, I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. Obviously it's a shadow figure. So it was just kind of, you know, genderless, but you could see it. It was darker than dark and it was eating the light. And so the next day, Uh, When I got up for school, I went outside and I saw footprints outside of my window, which you guys have to understand my position. I was growing up in the Christian tradition. In the Christian tradition, we have demons and horns and hooves. We don't necessarily have shadow people, certainly not something that had physicality. And so there was a point in time in my life, I think it was maybe about 20 years old, I had to just basically ball up and trash everything I was taught demons were in Christianity because what I was experiencing did not fit in the blueprint of dogma, right? Yep. So I had to say, okay, either they're right and what I'm experiencing is wrong, 
Hmm. Or there's people out there that are experiencing similar things. And that dogma, that, that dogma is not data driven, right? So that's when I had to say, okay, I had to let go of some things and just sit down as a researcher and say, what does the data say? I don't care about the dogma. What is the data saying? If that makes sense. Do you, do you still rely on, on sort of the ancient religious texts for your research? Some, but again, my position is that what we're dealing with are dis- disincarnate people. I'm not, I don't believe that we're dealing with horns and hooves. And, and so I, I think I, I, I align my own theology, my philosophy, demonology, really. I align it with the ancient manuscripts. And that is that, that they were formerly human people and that they have their own belief systems. And I think that uh, we're dealing with a form of the afterlife that is also evidenced. I'm not going to go ramble on, but it's very much evidenced in the exorcistic rites because the Catholic ritual doesn't work on every, every demon. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. This is a this is afterlife phenomenon in, in in my approach. So, what what are the main difference between differences between demonologist and exorcist? So, uh, for the most part, a demonologist is primarily someone who studies the phenomenon. The exorcist is someone who wants to displace it. Right. Right. So they're they're primarily dealing with possession cases. And, and so my research has been centered around trying to understand what possession is as a phenomenon, what it represents in modernity, and why it is that the, that the exorcistic rites are not one size fits all, right? Like you can go into Baghdad right now and you'll have an imam who will have a possessed man or a woman and their hadith will not work. We have cases like that because the entity was Jewish and died and it only believes in Yahweh. So they'll have to go to the neighboring city. This is crazy, right? I didn't know this growing up. They have to go over there and get a pre, uh, uh, what a rabbi rather, and the uh, rabbi come over there, quote the Torah, right? Quote Isaiah 8, 19 and all, not, no, numbers um, 19, 11. And he'll quote the Torah and the entity has faith in Yahweh and a fear of Yahweh. And so now it leaves. Now, if this is a one-size-fits-all problem, the exorcistic rights should be all around, right? Mm. But it doesn't. So do you think this relates to the religious belief of the human that has gone to this other plane? Absolutely. Absolutely. Matter of fact, there's a demonologist named um, Father uh, Sinistrari of Amino. He was a Franciscan priest. He encountered pagan demons. Now, what an oxymoron, right? Demon is a religious term. It's tied to dogma, you know, demon horns and hooves. What the heck is a pagan demon? It's a demon that didn't believe anything, had no God, had no philosophical worldview, dies. Probably had to edit edit that out. I talk with my hands a lot, guys. Dies, right? And now it's not tethered to any religious system. And so Father Sinistrari had a very big problem with this. Because how do you cast it out, right? What do you do? So they would use fumigants and things. But so the overarching idea here, guys, is that it's possible, more than possible, probable, we're dealing with afterlife phenomena. And I think that uh, once demonologists shift their gaze into that direction, it could open up a new door of science to us. Yeah, we often uh, talk about the nature of consciousness and how we only sort of are really scratching the surface of, of trying right. to understand things. And uh, 
it's a very intriguing subject and I yes, think it's, uh, a little bit, it's deep sometimes but it's fun yeah well our, our society has become uh sort of less theological and more mechanistic I would say over the last 20 30 years and it seems to me that there is a resurgence in, in this sort of stuff that was sort of going back a bit towards these uh, subjects and looking at them with with new eyes and looking at things like quantum physics. We talked about uh, Gary Kidgel last week mentioned about quantum physics, how that could be part of the puzzle that we need to put together. Absolutely, Absolutely. it's it's very interesting, guys. I mean, um, like I had a case. Okay, first of all, I've, I'm I'm not going to ramble, but I want to make a point because I think this is the most fascinating subject that I've read yet. In demonology, classical demonology, our belief of an incubus spirit was that it was just a spirit that manifested as a man to a woman, right? In my research, I have encountered more, I mean, a dozen cases where the incubus is not interested in the woman for intercourse or pleasure. I am working with female experiencers right now where the entity has realized after grooming them into intercourse that they have had a hysterectomy. And at the moment they realize that the phenomenon vanishes. Now, if they were purely after pleasure, then why are they seeking to impregnate? Good question. (laughs) Right. Right. This is a problem. Yeah. It should be for demonologists because this doesn't fit. Right. And so that's where my research um, right now is centered around. Well, what, what are they doing? It's not pleasure. It's, they're not looking for, um, you know, to, to, to release sensual desires or to relive past memories. No, they're looking for women, women who are fertile enough to, to birth something in this dimension. Right. Oh. And that, that when I realized that my mind went, oh, my God, you know, it just opened so many doors. This uh, sounds like we're drifting towards Nephilim. Yeah. Yeah, we can go anywhere you want, man. I can, yeah, we can do whatever you want, but this, uh, yeah. it is. Yeah, th- it it, is. that's a controversial topic. We've had a couple of guests speaking on Nephilim, and it is there are lots of different viewpoints about it and what the religious texts say and don't say and, and different ideas. Um, is, it, is it your viewpoint that some of these spirits, or de- demons rather, Mm-hmm. are some sort of Nephilim entity that are trying to bring about or incarnate right, right. into our realm. Yeah, you're exactly right. Something that I really think some researchers miss on all this is that there are words used in the, in the biblical text that can be either or, right? So if we go to the Rephaim, which is uh, often employed in the Old Testament, giants, there's another term that it, it's another definition of that, and it means deceased ancestors or ghost. Now, those two really have no correlation, right? What does a giant have to do with a ghost? Well, the giant was the body the ghost inhabited. That's the truth of the matter. Matter of fact, there's a uh, text, and I, it's, I've never heard of anybody teaching on this. So that's why I kind of got angry. I'm like, come on, man. I found it, right? It should be out there. You know, it's so fascinating, man. So uh, it's called the Apocryphon of John, and it's, uh, it's a Coptic manuscript preserved by Egyptian monks. Yeah. And in it, it's a reference to what happened in Genesis 6. It's the very first narrative that I've seen in my research personally that details exactly what happened play by play, right? 
It says that these entities manifested as the wives' husbands. So they literally waited, and this is an incubus, right? They waited until the husband went out and got beer or went out with the guys or went grocery shopping and then went into the room in the image of the husband, shape-shifting. And then they groomed these women into intercourse. It's an incubi, obviously. It's an incubus. But at the moment of consummation, the moment of impregnation, they performed a necromantic ritual. It's, it's called an obstetric tradition. Obstetric is a reference to childbearing and fertility. They stared into the eyes of these women and then reversed their apparition to what they originally looked like. Now, why were they doing that? Because the tradition, biblical antiquity, Mesopotamia even, was that whatever man the woman was focused upon at the moment of impregnation, she will birth the material image of in her womb. So what were they doing? They were creating bodies that looked like their apparitions. Right. This is very interesting because to me because this story of a it was sometimes a god, but a higher being coming down, right. incarnating, then luring the husband away. This is in yeah. Greek mythology and other ancient traditions. This isn't um, uh, limited to the Apocrypha of John, is it? Right. No, it's not. And uh, it's quite terrifying, really, because while their language, while their experience was limited to the language they described it by, right, with, rather, we could take that, we could stretch it and say, was that an act of um, intercourse, or were they being abducted 5,000 years ago, and they're doing their best to describe it with the limited vocabulary they have. I'll tell you why, because I'm I'm working with abductees now, too, who are experiencing this same phenomenon. Um, Matter of fact, Dr. Carla Turner's work, the great UFO abduction researcher, she talks about how she had a uh, client named Ted Rice. Ted Rice was abducted along with his grandmother at the age of nine years old, I believe. And so he was in this ship, and he says that his grandmother was approached by this hybrid being, and the hybrid being tried to groom her into intercourse. She stated, in no uncertain terms, I've only been with one man, and it was my husband. He's been deceased now for 11 years. Time out. This is why it's important as a researcher to look at the pathology, right? The behavioral patterns. What what happens next? An apparition of her husband walks out of the shadows and tries to groom her into intercourse, right? So this whole program here, it's as if, and I'll shut up because I, I, (laughs) but it's as if we're dealing with the same phenomenon. It's just coming and manifesting in different ways. Yeah, and it's each culture is, is relating it in terms that apply to them in that period of time. Right. You know, and we, you know, we through science fiction and all sorts of uh, cultural things we have going on now, that Mm -hmm. sort of uh, classic alien abduction abduction story sort of probably makes sense to us. Whereas 2,000 years ago, two and a half thousand years ago, it would have been Zeus, you know, turned into a swan. Exactly right. Exactly right. You hit the nail on the head, man. 
and again, it's, it's very interesting to me because I, you know, I try to research everything I can. And there are people in the ufology field who say, you know what, they're not demons. And I'm saying, well, look, I'm not saying that they're demons, right? And I'm not saying that they're what other people would call demons. I'm saying that we have a language problem throughout millennia, right? And I don't, don't this, this, this phenomenon cannot be lost in translation, and so that's why it's important, again, study the behavioral patterns and just look at that, not the dogma, the data, and that will tell a very chilling narrative. Yeah, so we associate them with aliens today. In Old Testament times, they've come up with names like Nephilim. What right. do you think they actually are? Necromancers. Necromancers. Yes, no. at least that's at least a part of their goal necromancy so the nephilim were necromancers that's what they were doing they were placing disincarnate ghosts into bodies again now i didn't realize why they were called rephaim until i understood the language they spoke which i I shouldn't say it like that till i knew the language they spoke and i read on it so if you go back into the old testament the nephilim were given certain characteristics number one uh the the uh, ammonites went into canaan they said that they called them zamzumim i'm sure you guys have heard this if not it's really cool um zamzumim is not a concrete title the ammonites had a word in their language zamzumim zamzum rather and that word was the only word they had that sounded like the language these nephilim spoke to each other this gets very deep it's a buzzing sound it's a chirping sound and it's a chattering sound think of an insect an insect like a locust now in order to understand what that is we have to go to isaiah chapter 8 and 19 where yahweh yahweh is prohibiting necromancy and the characteristic that he lists is those who have the language of chirping in muttering. Why? They're necromancers. And I get, what's really chilling about this is we get so caught up in the um, pomp and circumstance of possession, right? Especially here in the States. And oh my God, we got the exorcist and the exorcist of Emily Rose. And what we need to realize is that, yeah, they can speak Latin, but there is an inhuman language that they communicate with. And it's unknown to us. We can hear it and sometimes pick it up in EVP, but we do not understand it. Is this making sense? <laughs> yep. So they're necromancers. That's why when the spies went into Canaan, they said that the land devours its inhabitants. Right. And are they, are they communicating with each other? Yes, they're communicating to each other, and that's what they were witnessed doing. So we're looking at entities. This is what's very interesting to me as well. We're looking for entities that have a profound knowledge of the afterlife. Okay. They're psychopaths. Uh, they're like Nimrod. They're hunters of men and not just hunters of men in the sense that I'm going to go pick a man out of a crowd or, or, you know, we're talking like serial killer psychopathology, people who wake up every day looking to victimize, to haunt, hunt. Mm-hmm. And so God, I went off on a tangent. Forgive me, guys. I get passionate, man, and I just, I, but it's really fascinating stuff, man. What's, what's the motivation for the, for the, the act of necromancy? What are they trying to accomplish? Re-embodiment. For what purpose? To live again. They don't want to die. So, this is, this gets really cool, man. Check this out. So, I did not understand the correlation of why they would want to introduce a species of giants. 
never made sense to me, right? It wasn't just giganticism or something. It wasn't like, okay, it was a birth defect. No, they, they evolved into these beings. For what purpose? It wasn't until I, I read a paper on disembodied souls. It was called, uh, it's actually called disembodied souls, but it was pulled out of Ezekiel chapter 13. And I'm not just going to talk theology and Bible. You know, I'm going to go to Mesopotamia and everything here. So, you know, people don't, don't freak out, you know, but I'm going to nestle this thought in Ezekiel 13. He's listing false prophets, Yahweh is, but they're necromancers. This gets crazy. He says, number one, those who should die live. Those are ghosts. They live, they're embodied. Those who should live die. And so there is a remarkable currency here that Yahweh is highlighting. These entities that should die are living because those who should live are dying. It's crazy. And so in this chapter, Ezekiel 13, Yahweh details a specific apocalyptic species of evil. These are Nephilim that will go into the homes of their victims at nighttime, kill them in their sleep, cut a piece of their flesh off of their body, and sew it onto themselves. Now, it's important to understand what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with entities that want to possess Deer and Edna, right? We're looking for entities that want to have a body that look like their apparitions. So what they're doing, according to Fritz Kramer, the great anthropologist, is they're creating a social skin. Social skin? Right. Something that looks like who they used to be. Right. It's very interesting, guys, right? So what we have here are people who lived. They have a physical resemblance, right? They die. And their apparition looked like the body they used to inhabit. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, now, here's what's important. Um, Even Alexander, the great uh, researcher of um, reincarnation, he's having, he's dead now, but he had cases of people who before five years old would say, I used to be this person. I'm not supposed to be this person. I used to be this person. And what they did is they compared pictures. Who were you before and who are you now? And they looked similar. So what we're looking for here, guys, is it's some form, as far as I could tell, a fallen form of reincarnation where the people who should die live again and those who should live die. And so there's an entire new research of victimology that we have to evolve into. Wow. Um, you need what? a beer? Yeah. I need one time. I'm kidding. No, no, no. There is something stronger, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. <clears throat> Tell us about some of your personal encounters with these things. Well, the Malters is what I've labeled them. There's really no other term for them in my vocabulary. My encounters with them have usually been spirits of suicide, where they will, uh, you know, manipulate the person. They will literally conform to the person in pre-possession, and then the person will conform to them in possession. And so the biggest case that I've ever worked on that was the most enlightening to my work and research, it was a murder case. One day I got an email, actually it was a Facebook message, where a mother was stabbed to death in her home. And uh, it was weird because as I'm messaging back and forth, 
I was sitting at a, a at dinner, but my mind or something, it's the very first time it ever happened in my life, my mind was there, and I was walking up the steps to a second-story house. I had, I had, I had uh, cornered the entity in a closet, and as I'm talking to one of the victims, the lady says, look, she goes, I was in that closet last night. I know exactly what you're talking about. So when I got there, the story was basically this. 13-year-old daughter got connected with a 15-year-old girl at school. The 15-year-old girl was a bad influence, and the father told his daughter, listen, I don't want you hanging out with her. There's a bad, bad spirit on her. It's just a dark energy. I don't trust her. And so finally, the 15-year-old started influencing the younger girl to the point where the younger girl was completely separated from her family, wouldn't come out at, at night, like come out of her room at all during the day, uh, wouldn't do anything but sleep. Her grades began to fail. She began to cut herself. Um, just, you know, suicidal tendencies began to manifest. And the husband told me when I visited, he said, one day, man, he goes, I'm watching television. He said, and it's like 2.30 in the morning. He said, I look out my window. He said, and there's the 15-year-old girl just staring at me. And he said, about two months later, he said it was on a school night that his daughter walked downstairs, opened the front door to the 15-year-old. 15-year-old enters the house. She has a bandana over her, her face. There is a male guttural voice billowing out of her body and she begins stabbing everybody in sight. Um, it's a very heavy case, as you guys can imagine. So when I got there, the carpet was cut up. The victim that had died was the mother of the daughter. And when I, for, when I got there, the family had been experiencing paranormal activity prior to and after the murder. Now, Nathan, well, I guess I'll ask this, well, what really made a difference in this case? What really interested me, uh, what was interesting to me, rather, was how the entity possessed the 15-year-old because the 13-year-old would have never stabbed. But the 15-year-old did not have access into the house without the 13-year-old opening the door. So it had to manipulate both of them into a position where it leaned on them to act. And when it acted, it's very curious. You guys follow me on that? No, no, but I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll finish up with this. All right, man. So I went in there, I did the cleansing, and I have it on, on uh, recording. You can actually hear the people in there. You can, you can hear them scream because when I did the cleansing, the only way I can describe it is uh, like, you know how you go into a room and you have one of those um, light switches where you could just slowly pull it up, slowly pull it down? Well, it was almost as if the darkness left like someone was slowly turning the light on. You could see it. It was gone. So after I did the cleansing, the 13-year-old is visited by this entity in prison. How do I know this? Hand to God. The social worker told me this. She said the entity visited her, kept visiting her until the cleansing happened. When I did the cleansing that very night, the entity visited the 13-year-old and said, I have to go. I'm no longer allowed to be here. So whatever happened, happened. It's a very crazy, crazy case. But the possession aspect of it was the most remarkable piece of information for me. 
They he possessed oh. both of them. So how do you know it's the same the same thing possessing both of them, and not two oh. separate events? No, they're possessed at the same time. Hold on, real quick. I'm gonna close this out. Yeah, they're possessed at the same time, right? So what I had figured out was the entity that did it was the father, the father of the actual victim. Now this is going to play with some people's philosophy. That's okay. When I got there, I cornered the entity upstairs in the uh, closet. When I looked down in the closet, there was a green milk carton full of trains, model trains, like a kid or something had, had lived there. And I had someone with me and I told him, I don't want to know anything while I'm going through the house. I'm just going to talk and, and say what I feel. The entity that was there, I could feel was in the closet because it was either his belongings or it, or he was reminded of something in that closet, like something in that closet reminded him of life or something. So we did, we did that closet. We would turn around, go to another closet and we opened the door and there was nothing but like, um, like tackle boxes and, and fishing poles. I said, okay. I said, I, I feel it again. I said, this entity is attracted to this closet too. I said, there's something in this room that belongs to him. So I went downstairs to the living room. And as I'm talking to one of the family members, I see a vision of the victim, the wife. She was sitting at the, they had a wooden table there. She was sitting at a wooden chair. But she wasn't there, obviously, and the wooden chair was missing. So I didn't know where that was. But I saw her. And I said, I don't know why I'm seeing this, but, you know, this is what it is. So I get in the living room and I said, okay, this is what I, I told them everything I said. You know, I saw the tackle boxes, the model trains, the chair in the living room and her smoking on it. And as I'm talking to them, I said, man, I said, there's a very violent male spirit that just entered the room. And I said, it's very big. I said, it's evil. And I said, it hates women. And I said, so it may have beat his wife or, or killed her or something. I said, but because it hates women. When I said that, the husband of the victim, he chimes in. He goes, you know what? He goes, that sounds awful, an awful lot like my father-in-law. And I said, well, what was his name? He said, Doug. I said, okay, Dougie? I just said that, Dougie. He goes, starts laughing. He goes, yeah. He goes, how'd you know? I said, I, that's Dougie, you know, Doug. He goes, no. He said, that was his nickname. He said, but my father-in-law hated women. He was a drug addict. He was a gangbanger, and he would often get hammered and wasted and beat my wife, which was his daughter. He said, would beat my wife unconscious and beat his wife. He said, matter of fact, the only way they could get him out of that rage, his rageful stupor, is to put him in a car like a kid, take him to Toys R Us, and get him green model trains. I said, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, matter of fact, when he died, we put those green model trains upstairs in the closet. And by that time, this is very weird. One of the other family members says, well, you know what? We were upstairs and Nathan pointed to the other closet where the fishing poles were. He goes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are all his. He was a bass fisherman. He said, it's funny you mentioned that because um, that, that, that wooden table you saw in the kitchen, he made that. He said, and, and even more than that, the wooden chair you saw that's no longer in there is actually in the garage, and he made that too. Hand to God. So at that point, I could feel it enter the room again. It was like anger. I mean, like just wanted, if it could, it would kill everything. And uh, that's when I did the cleansing. But that's what really opened my eyes because in theory, right, disincarnate consciousness, okay, makes sense. When it's in practice, 
when that entity could no longer inhabit the house, had to go back to the 13-year-old girl and say, listen, I can't stay, right? So it was a crazy case, man, crazy. Is there any kind of um, direct communication between you and like the entities, the demons or whatever that you kind of encounter? Yes. Um, most of the time I have forerunners. So if I, I'll get a name or an apparition will come to me. Um, and so if I, like, I'll, I'll go to a case and say, okay, do you, you ever heard of a man named Aaron or, you know, is there a connection here? And if they say no, I just shelve it. Right. But, but often, most of the time I'll get an apparition or I'll get a dream or something. will I guess you can call it premonition. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're attuned to this somehow through your, is that through the depth of your research? Do you think that's why you've developed this sort of premonition ability of I have no idea. I think that I was targeted in my youth because of whatever this is that I have, you know, um, this entity that I felt in that house was somebody who committed suicide. And how do I know that? Because I have a weird connection with those spirits. Like I can feel it on people. Um, you know, I've had people that I've talked to where I'll just pick them out of a crowd you know, and say, this is what you're dealing with. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me, but I would say that uh, that's why they targeted me. They didn't want this to yeah. you know, evolve. You, you obviously, you, you must fit, think you have some sort of natural propensity or natural ability. And that's why you saw, you know, the first apparition when you were a little kid. Probably so. Probably it really what. sucked back then though, guys. It was bad. <laughs> I was going to say, did it not have some kind of <laughs> a negative impact on you as well? Um, to some degree, I mean, it took me a while to embrace who I am, you know, mm-hmm. and not just think, okay, man, I'm this freak, you know, I'm a weirdo or why is it I see this? And, mm-hmm. you know, so it took me a while to get comfortable in my own skin, but what has saved me is, is the ability to balance the, the experience with literature. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just the, the, um, spiritual pursuit of this phenomenon, but it's the intellectual pursuit as well. You know, the pilgrimage into some of the greatest minds that have ever lived. That's what has kept me sane. <laughs> and, and presumably using your own intellect to, to produce the books and put this stuff in your own words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, tell us a bit about the, the books. So a moment called man, I wrote in honor of a friend that I lost to addiction And the book is primarily about people who medicate the gifts they're called to manifest. And so I deal with the darkness and people who are hurting uh, and don't know why. So I I wrote that book for him and just to, to help people reach their full potential and not hate themselves for their giftings. And so that was my first one. The second one that's up for pre-order on my Instagram is the skin that crawls. And that's when I, that's, I'm going to go through possession. Um, I start out with ancient manuscripts, the ritual of Osgi, the origin of the ghost and, and what role that plays in Genesis six. So I go through that and I, 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 um, I land in Ezekiel 13 and how the necromancers were always giants it makes sense why they would want a giant race, you know? Uh, then I, I, I finish up with, um, the UFO abduction phenomenon and how they're pulling souls out of bodies and how that relates to, to this, this research. 
It's the same thing. These are necromancers. Yeah, or you, the term used, is it Moltres, did you say? Moltres, Moltres, yeah. Moltres. Man, I got, I got a, um, another individual that I'm working with whose father was a renowned remote viewer. Right. His father would say he would leave his body. He would go and he would experience these, these revelations from these guides. And he said one night his father came into the room stumbling, falls on his face, has a coronary heart attack, goes to the hospital. They give him happy meds, happy pills, and he finally calms down enough to tell him what happened. They rip open his shirt, and he points at scars and what were amulets that these entities he met carved into his flesh. Jeez Louise. Right. They're amulets. What, um, what's the... The purpose for that, the amulet, what, how does okay, that take? One was an upside down cross. One was the star of David and the other one was e- their Egyptian hieroglyphs, which oh. is very troubling. Okay. Now watch this. They did not mark the body. They, I believe they marked the soul. And when the soul went back into the body, it manifested on the flesh. Why do I believe that? Right. Just go with me on this and I'll, I'll shut up. But there is a researcher uh, named, named, oh, Lord. Hold on. No, it's an experiencer, rather. She's an abductee, an experiencer. Her name is Betty Andreasen Luca. And her husband watched as one night she was abducted. But what happened was they raised her apparition out of her body. Okay? Her body's still there. Her apparition goes through the wall. Right, they're necromancers. Right? They have a profound knowledge of the afterlife. So when her, her, her apparition goes back into her body, all of a sudden she has scoop marks that were never there before. Time out. They didn't abduct her body, did they? No. So it's not, that, it's not just that they're abducting people. It's not just that they're taking souls and putting them into babies and bodies. They have, a, a, a like I said, a profound unnatural, unearthly knowledge of the human soul and what consciousness is. Where our physicians are still learning the science of medicine and how to treat the flesh, they're treating the soul in a way that we're perhaps not even ready for. And I'll shut up. I'll stop rambling. Um, the, the three amulets. So we've got the upside down cross, the cross of Peter, who was mm-hmm. crucified upside down according to the Bible. Star of David and Egyptian hieroglyphs. I mean, yeah. why, why, the, why do you think those three? I'm still looking into that, man. I have no idea. It's terrifying, really, you know, because he said that um, whenever he would encounter these entities, they would be lined, they were in a room, <laughs> right? Interesting. And uh, they would line the right and left sides. <clears throat> and he said he would walk up to them. He would have a password. This is what he said. And um, he would go to them and they would have to give him the password. And that was how his, his one guide, his lead guide said, that's how you know you're in the right place. And he went there. They looked, again, they looked like his regular guides. And uh, they realized they didn't know the password. And when they knew that he knew, oh, my God, right? This is not right. This is wrong. He said they changed their apparition to what they really looked like, which is what gave him a heart attack because it scared him to death. So now... 
they're molters, they're necromancers. And in Ezekiel 13, Yahweh calls them soul hunters. Matter of fact, I'm going to tie it directly to UFO abduction. In Ezekiel 13, he says, those who hunt the souls of men to make them fly. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Right? Yeah. This is so far deeper than what demonology has ever scratched the surface of. They are enchanting. We would call them gods. They're necromancers. There's somebody who died, in my mind, who molted, and now they have everything they need, and there would be gods to us. That was something I was going to ask you then. Do you think that this relates to the pagan times and the the time of many gods? Do you think that Baal and... You know, all these other ancient pagan gods that were running around all over the place, it seems, you know, during um, Mesopotamian times, every city seemed to have its own deity. Oh, of course, yeah. You got henotheism, yeah, polytheism, all that, yeah, absolutely. Now, again, um, we cannot get trapped and limited to the language they use to describe these entities. So in Roman times, we have diaries of soldiers uh, talking to their admirals and saying there are flying shields, right? Here's why we can't get trapped in vocabulary. Were they flying shields? No. So yesterday's flying shields are today's flying saucers. Nothing's changed. It's just the way that we frame it. Yeah, and the perception of the right, the limit limitations of the language of the people who see them at the time, I guess. And as exactly right. like I said exactly before, right. there's a huge translation issue, isn't there? There is, and you know, like I said, I grew up in the dogma, but the dogma didn't deliver me. The data did, and the data has to be separated from the dogma for researchers to get anywhere near the truth. And you feel you're. Uh, a long way, you know, you've, you've made strides in this, in this field. I'm further than I was. I'm further than I was. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know how you even begin to wrap your head around this stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel, I mean, you, this is obviously like a calling for you. It's something very personal to you that you're obviously very passionate about. Do you ever feel like you're not progressing? Like you're, you're yeah. ending up you're, with more questions than... What you had six uh, oh months ago. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. I mean, Father Sinistrari Domino, I mean, just, I'm just going to say this. This is what troubles me. This is what keeps me up at night. One of the things, I mean, Sinistrari uh, was having incubi victims where he was pulling the eyelids back and the entity had scarred them, placed symbols underneath their eyelids. Why? What? Can I say the word hell? No? Yeah, you say anything, yeah. What yeah. in the hell are we dealing with? Right? These are symbols. The simplification of a language we don't know is underneath the eyelids of people. And they have no idea. I didn't even know it happened to me. But here they are. So whatever we're dealing with is um, it's predatory in nature. It's not here to be our best friend. It's seductive. It's enchanting, but it is, make no mistake, an apocalyptic species of evil, unlike anything we've ever heard of in any horror movie or any H.P. Lovecraft novel. (laughs) And the scariest thing about it, it's here and it's staring at us right in the face. 
that's what's concerning to me. And I'm not, I'm not an edge Lord is what you know, I'm not trying to get everybody spooky, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the facts. So have you noticed then, is there kind of um, like peaks and troughs of these kinds of happenings to your kind of uh, knowledge or experience, or is it just a constant kind of flow a trickle or. So at least in my research, is that what you mean? Yeah. Um, your research or, you yeah. know, I don't know if you're engaged in a wider community. Do you notice, like, uh, if you sort of, I don't know, if you have a WhatsApp group or whatever. No, no. Uh, no. And you all talk you know, I, um, you know, there are days when, I'll be honest, there are days when my research is not as inspired, you know. I, I, I can't put things together, you know, like, uh-huh. you know, or, and I get angry. It's like I have to just shut down for maybe a week and recenter and then look at the facts again with fresh eyes. And there are other days where the information's flowing and you put pieces together again. You're like, Oh my God, you know, like the other day um, I was reading an, an abduction account uh, and the abduction account mirrored exactly what I had, what I read in REL master's book uh, in REL master's book, Eros and evil. He talked about um, in the uh, medieval period, how the demons we're taking the witches out of the bed at night to a sabbat. And then it would replace the woman with an apparition of her in the bed. So the husband would look and not realize she's gone. Right. In my mind, I immediately went back to Betty and Darius and Luca, right? It took the apparition left the body. The husband would have looked and said, okay, she's still here. No, she's not. <laughs> but I look back and I found another, it's another behavioral pattern where an abductee had the very same thing happen. Only his wife was abducted and the alien female crawled in bed with him as if it was sleeping next to him. So it's switching. Like it's like in European folklore when they had had the changeling, right? They would take the baby and replace it with something similar. Mm-hmm. So in my research, the behavioral patterns are there. They've been there throughout all of history. We just have to know where to look. Okay. And as you said earlier, so part of the the MO, part of the goal is to incarnate. Mm -hmm. And part of the process is sort of removing the soul. What happens to these people where this happens, where the soul is, what happens to that soul? when it's removed and the entity um, goes in well, people, to, to the best of your knowledge anyway. I, I don't know that yet. I don't know that yet. The, now in Ezekiel 13, it says they're imprisoned. Right. Um, now we would call that like, um, what is it? Yeah, they're in prison. So let me, let me move forward with this. What they are doing is at least in my knowledge is they will abduct a person. This has happened many times. And uh, matter of fact, Dr. Carla Turner had one abductee who was not cooperating with them. And they told her, if you don't do what we want you to do, they pointed to the corner and she said, there was another me laying there. This gets very, this gets deeper. Okay. We're going to go a run deeper here. And she said, there was a clone of my body on a slab. And they said, if you don't do what, what we want you to do, we'll kill you and we'll replace you with that. And nobody in your life will know the difference. Now, time out. If she's dead, whose consciousness are they going to put in that body? Right? Yeah. So what we're dealing with are entities that can switch out consciousness and switch out bodies at will. 
So once the uh, the normal standard human being has been removed, are they just sort of like a disembodied spirit then? Would they fall into the so. category of... So. Um, and I also believe that some of the um, UFOs we are um, witnessing um, are tethered to consciousness. So 65%, the data sample says, 65% of abductees say that the ship they were on was alive. So if we look at their interests throughout all of history, from funerary texts in Mesopotamia, their very first belief of the afterlife was that consciousness can be merged with metal. And so I think that is another side to that phenomenon as well right so it's a whole nother show bro it's a whole nother show. yeah yeah so <laughs> that time. consciousness doesn't have to be tied to you know traditional carbon-based life forms like like we would say like animals and humans or whatever that mm-hmm. so consciousness can be tethered to inanimate materials absolutely christ Ma- well going back to going back to mesopotamia they had their idols didn't they Oh, you know, can we go down that way real quick? Oh, yeah. this going get real good, dude. Oh, my God. This gets nuts. Okay. So, in, in biblical antiquity, they used to have what are called teraphim. Now, Laban, the idolater, created teraphim. They weren't just figurines. Teraphim was a necromantic ritual where he would go out and he would find a victim, kill him. He would take their head off take him downstairs in the basement, stick the head inside the wall, take a piece of metal, carve the name of an unclean spirit, Tumarua. It's a disincarnate it's a ghost. It's not a horns and hoofs. That's what it means. It's a ghost. Carve his name on the metal bar, right? Consciousness. And then, and then place it underneath the tongue of the cadaver. And then that entity would possess the skull and begin to communicate. Why? Because he's tethering consciousness with metal. Right. Necromancy. They know how to do this. They've been doing this all all, all along. It's, dude, it gets deeper and deeper, and I won't keep... I thought, man, when I've read that, I thought, oh, my God. What? Well, we're rocking up on time already, Nathan. Mm. Um, what are you working on at the moment? Um... Okay, so I've got um, a couple of women that have um, samples left by their incubus spirit. What kind of samples? Semen samples. Yikes. So, now, I could be dealing with people that are lying. I could be dealing with people who are trying to cover up an affair. Or I could be, you know, I don't know. My only thing is, what if I get a semen sample and connect it to somebody who died? across the world mm-hmm. because Sinistrar, even Mino and Montague Summers both agreed that at least some of these entities are milking the carcasses of the dead, <laughs> taking it and implanting it in living women. That's why not to throw this wrench at you guys. That's why the concept of the Dybbuk in Jewish legend means the impregnation of the dead in the bodies of the living demonology, demonology, the 21st century version of demonology is withered compared to what they knew. And that's what I'm trying to do. Bring it back. Yeah. Relearn, relearn what we've forgotten essentially. Right. 
But dude, if if I can prove, okay, you know what? If I get one semen sample, just one, that says, okay, this came from a deceased person who's been dead for 10 years, the demonology field is completely shattered, right? I took it to the next level, which is really the, the goal of any researcher, man. That would be incredible. I don't know that'll ever happen, but, you know, what if, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, well, be proof. Best of luck in your in your semen hunt. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. There's no real way of making that cool, by the way. <laughs> you know, one guy, Cedric, I, I did a, I did a Sam Tripoli show. He said, uh, oh, yeah. so you're just going around scooping up man sauce. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> Only you, Sam, right? Yeah, typical. No. Well, it's been fantastic. We won't take any more of your time up. Um, check no. out the books, Eavesdroppers. Links will be in the description. You go to... Um, yeah njgillis.com again link will be in the show notes you want to find out more have you got a, a mailing list or anything nathan i don't i don't man i'm fairly new i my first show i ever did was last year and it was uh coast to coast it was the very first oh, show i ever wow. did so i'm i'm not new to the research but i'm new to the field where people know me so i don't really have yeah i'm building that for now so cool well, best of yeah. luck in the future, and um, yep. yeah, we'll definitely be keeping tabs on your progress and uh, checking in. Make sure you yeah. follow him where you can on social media and stuff, and um, just hold on the line for us for two minutes while we play ourselves out. All right, Nathan? Mm-hmm. That's cool. Okay, cool. Don't touch that dial, eavesdroppers. Back in a flash. Right, then we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. That was our chat with Nathaniel J. Gillis. That was mind blowing. It was, wasn't it? Was. it? Yeah, demon sperm. Yeah, he knew. He knew that they could actually still ejaculate. It's not what ectoplasm is. Maybe. Oh, he slimed me. Brings a new, <laughs> a new meaning to the term. Yeah, that was really interesting. Do go and uh, check out the links in the description and uh, follow his work. Check out his books. I'm going to check the books out. Sound good to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The skin that crawls sounds a bit creepy, though. Yeah. Mm. I like that. <laughs> oh, I like no. creepy shit. <laughs> so, yeah. Right, let's crack on. Let's do some housekeeping. Housekeeping. Ugh. Housekeeping. Oh. Housekeeping. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Become a producer and support the show. This is a value for value podcast. If you find this podcast valuable, please consider returning some value. There are a myriad ways to do this. You could uh, leave us a review on iTunes or whichever platform you're currently listening on. Uh, You could subscribe to the YouTube channel because we want to get the numbers up on that. Um, What else can you do? Follow us on social media. Yeah. All the links are in the description again. Send merch. And where I wear my merch for every podcast now because it's so comfortable. Yeah, if you uh, scroll down to the show notes, you'll find the link for the Amish loot chest, and we have uh, lots of different apparel there: t-shirts, hoodies, face masks. I got a, a nice selfie from Dean McCoy seventy three today, modelling his "put on your fucking muzzle" <laughs> face mask. So, congratulations, it- Dean! You're a producer for episode one seven three. It's much appreciated. And is it the mask with or without the asterisks? He's not that hardcore. Uh, it was asterisks. 
Yeah, I think uh, without the asterisks is more of a souvenir. <laughs> okay. Takes some stones to wear that. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. But if you do disagree with wearing face masks, but you but you have to, a good way to register your dissent is by purchasing an Armist Inquisition put on your fucking muzzle face mask. Yes. So uh, thanks. Thanks for your support. Uh, what else do we need? You can send us artwork. Uh, between 1,400 squared pixels and 3,000 squared pixels. You send us artwork, we will upload it in the, uh, the podcast, whatever, the artwork for the episode that it refers to. As long as it's not too, you know, as long as it's not, I don't know, there's probably terms and conditions. It probably can't be pornographic. <laughs> you can send us pornographic artworks if you like. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah, memes. Send us memes for Instagram. Got sent a couple of good ones this week. Um, send us news articles, video clips, audio clips from other podcasts that you find interesting or revealing or you feel require amplifying material, basically. That's why you're a producer. You're providing us with material mm-hmm. that we can uh, doff out, splurge out into your... Value for value. It, into your ear ear canals. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, is that it? I was. What's the number one way to become a producer? Fuck me. Oh, give us some money. Toss a coin. Toss a coin to your Witcher. Oh, Valley of Plenty. Oh, Valley of Plenty. I'm literally a communist. Toss a coin to. I your think you're hitting hitting the oh, point, Phil. That. Uh, 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 it really bothers me. Feces. Yes, thanks. Uh, yeah, monetary donations. Go to thearmistinquisition.com. You'll find the PayPal button there. And you can give us a monthly or a one-off. Sign up for a monthly. What do they say? Buy us a coffee. Isn't that the thing? Yeah, say? that's what they say, yeah. You've just got a machine there, Phil, so and no point, really. You've got um, 12 coffees in, aren't you? I think I'm about eight <laughs> eight coffees in today. My first bean to cup machine. You buy some beans, I suppose. <laughs> Send in some beans. <laughs> Send in the beans. Yeah. Right, let's thank the producers for episode 173. We have Wandering Wyatt, Tambrister 2020, Chardy, Malin Baker, Online Chemistry Tutor, Dean McCoy 73. Anonymous and everyone who bought merch this week. Thank you. You're so amazing in your love. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their love. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am chest feeding. Chest feeding. (laughs) Fucking vegan. It really bothers me. Chest feeding. <laughs> Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. The dwarf. The carrots. The grape. The homophobe. The wind. The uh, tosselizu man. The fucking vegan. The blind dog faced pony soldier. The asthma. The crump up chunks. The number 11. The special deposit. The blind man. The communist. On the horizon. The cripple and the mother of. Money bickering. From like a judgment day and terminating mode like. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I don't get it, never will. 
chest feeding. Oh, yes, thank you for your support for another week. Uh, what should we do? Um, I could just do this all day, to be honest. Sorry? The what? The wind. COVID news. The wind. <laughs> COVID-19 news. If you let it rip, they would get infected very rapidly and soon be filling up your hospitals and, unfortunately, your morgues. Vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. I wish we could vaccinate against stupidity. Uh, Tosilizum, mum. In the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. From hell. uh, The magic vaccine. It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Because we're getting bored and we want to have fun. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. Yeah, read the fucking standing orders. Don't go outside. They're the standing orders. But massive news this week. The roadmap. The UK government's roadmap has been unveiled. The roadmap to freedom. (laughs) Yes, your liberty is going to be restored. Restored, yes. Marginally. Our glorious (laughs) emperor has divined it. Suitable for our... Our liberty to be restored. Bit of a slow pace. Um, slow and steady wins the race. I've got some notes uh, here. And it Strong takes us stable. nicely into summer, doesn't it? When um, there were no cases last year, except the false positives. <laughs> <laughs> so March the 8th is step one. Schools go back. Boom. People will be allowed to leave home for recreation and exercise outdoors. Are we not allowed to with, do that now? With the household or support bubble, if they mm. are eligible for one. <laughs> or with one person from household. outside their household. One person from outside your household. I thought that was now. <laughs> Have I been doing it wrong? Care home residents will also be allowed one regular visitor. In full full gear, uh, behind a curtain. Yeah. That's step one, and then we've got a gap of about five weeks, is it? Till, five weeks uh, between each one, isn't there, I think? March yeah. the 29th. Uh, from March the 29th, more schools start to break up for Easter holidays. Outdoor gatherings, including in private gardens, of Ooh. either six people or two households will also be allowed, making it easier for friends and family to meet outside. Glorious. Uh, outdoor sports facilities such as tennis, basketball courts, open-air swimming pools will be allowed to reopen. The stay-at-home rule will end on the 29th of March. But many restrictions will remain in place. People should continue to work from home where they can, minimise the number of journeys, avoid travel at the business ty- busiest times, busiest routes. Travel abroad is prohibited, uh, only for a small number of permitted reasons. blah de blah de blah What about going on holiday? Uh, the government has launched a new task force to review global travel, which will report on the 12th of April. Oh, task force. Yeah. I want to be talking on the task force. Fucking talking shop, innit? <laughs> <laughs> Dog shit. Step three. <laughs> Not before May the 17th. 
Uh, government will look to continue easing limits on seeing friends and family wherever possible, allowing people to decide on the pro- allowing people to decide on the appropriate level of risk for their circumstances. Wow! Oh, Ooh, big. Okay, children, are you ready? We, we're going to allow you to assess your own level of risk, not before May the seventeenth. But that is coming, so that's something to be excited about, isn't it? Yeah. As soon as possible, and by no later than step three, we will also update the advice on social distancing between friends and family, including hugging. (laughs) Hugging advice is coming on May the 17th. I can't believe I'm reading this. This is from .gov website. Our advice advice on hugging (laughs) will be updated on May the 17th. What the fuck? have we come to but until this point people should continue to keep their distance from anyone not in their household or support bubble that's uh, may the 17th i'm just sort of going over the uh what do they call it the cliff notes version do they call it up to 30 people will be able to attend weddings receptions and wakes as well as funerals blah blah step four 21st of june the government hopes to be in a position to remove all legal limits on social contact. Holy shit. We hope to reopen remaining present premises, including nightclubs, and ease the restrictions on large events. This will be subject... Ease. ease yeah. yeah. Ease. We're not going back to normal. No, I know. It's the new thing. normal. Uh, this will be subject to the results of the Scientific Events Research Programme to test the outcome of certain pilot events through the spring and summer where we will trial the use of testing and other techniques to cut the risk of infection. The same events research program will guide decisions on whether all limits can be removed on weddings and other life events. As we move through each of the phases in the roadmap, we must all remember that COVID-19 remains a part of our lives. We are going to have to keep living our lives differently to keep ourselves and others safe. We must carry on with hands, face, space, comply with the COVID-secure measures that remain in place, meet outdoors when we can, keep letting fresh air in, get tested when needed, get vaccinated when offered. If we all continue to play our part, we will be that bit closer to a future that is more familiar. Oh, so vague. Mm. Uh, I was listening to What Most People Think, which is Jeff Norcott's podcast. He's a centre-right comedian. They do exist. Oh, yeah. No, they don't. He is. He's the the one. (laughs) And uh, he's really funny, and his podcast is really funny. Um, Would you like to hear Jeff's take on the the COVID roadmap for the UK? Mm -hmm. Yes. There's some distant prospect of normality. I I didn't really know how to deal with this feeling. But on the other hand, when I think about how long this shit is going to take, you know, I mean, if you behave yourself, if, if everybody's very good... Then, you know, at some point in May, you could have a haircut in your own fucking garden. How about that? <laughs> hey, you lucky people. It- <laughs> yeah. It's not inspired it- many people, I don't think, has it? Mm. It's not what, sorry? It's not seemed to have inspired people. I don't think people are excited about it, are they? No, because it's just, it's it's probably going to be nonsense, isn't it? And I mean? things have changed. Well, I mean, in terms of because things have changed so much over the past year to 18 months in terms of what, you know, what was supposed to happen and when things were going to end. This was all done by Easter 2020. Yeah, three weeks um, to flatten the curve. Um, 
So, you know, and it's just gone on and on and on and on, hasn't it? You think there's a bit of a, I'll believe it when I see it mentality? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's certainly dampened down my expectations of what's going to happen. I thought the magic vaccine was here. I just thought, you know, now it would be fine. It's almost as if they don't have much confidence in the vaccine, isn't it? Yeah. Like the, the way they're sort of trickling things out. Mm. Mm. There was a, a really good Unheard, you know, Unheard, the pop-up YouTube channel. Yeah. Freddie Sayers presents it. They've had some cracking interviews, great guests mm-hmm. um, over the course of the pandemic. And there was a really good one this week. And the guests were Charles Walker, Conservative mm-hmm. MP, mm-hmm. Vice Chairman of the 1922 Committee. That's the committee mm-hmm. that selects the leader of the Conservatives. Yeah. And uh, David Blunkett, who we talked about last week. And, uh, yeah, Blunkett's sort of position was we sort of like need to let people use the common sense now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he understands why the need for caution and uh, he sympathises with Keith Starmer, um, you know, being cautious, being ultra-cautious. But... Well, because, yeah, that's what the polls are saying, isn't it? So he's, it's not that he's actually... Um challenging the government what he's doing is he's taking the popular choice which is harder and and more yeah and when you're not in power there's no risk yeah you don't have to put your neck on the line you can just mm. wait and then just play i told you so yeah to a degree i guess uh, i've got some clips from the unheard one um you know uh, as it as it start, Charles Walker he talks about the role that the sage scientists have played um, okay. in the pandemic. I found this interesting. It is over. I'll just have to restart this for some reason. But did this the other week, and it's the same button. Yes, yeah, it's becoming a common theme. This uh, I hope so. I don't know why it's doing this. It's pad. Talk amongst yourselves, listeners. <laughs> oh. Chat this bit out. Uh, I hope he doesn't. It might make him actually <laughs> fix it for next time. It's just that button. A filthy it's pig. Hammered it. <laughs> it's the same button every week. I don't get it. It keeps doing this for some reason. Send it back to wherever it came from. From whence it came. I think it came from Germany. Anyway, let's try this. Charles Walker, what do you think? Do you think this is over? I I hope so, and I agree with David. I mean, I think you can be a sage scientist and advise the government, or you can be a scientist that goes on the airwaves, TV and radio, but it has been so damaging to have these various scientists from SAGE bidding each other up on the airwaves, creating huge concern. And, and I think it is, it is pretty disgraceful when they're introduced as X, Y and Z professor. X, Y and Z is a SAGE scientist, but is here in his or her own capacity. They're not there in their own capacity. They are there as, as, as a SAGE scientist. And of course, they've never been more in demand they have never been more intellectually engaged. But I think having these various scientists on our airwaves and in our newspapers day after day after day after day, bidding each other up, 
scaring constituents, my constituents, to the point wh wh where some have just been debilitated. Again, I'm sorry if I sound emotional, has been utterly disgraceful, and I hope there's a public inquiry, and I help, hope people are held to account. I'll be held to account at the ballot box, yeah? Um, I want the cheerleaders for this, the ruthless cheerleaders for this. It may well be that they're right, but I want them held to account. I really do. I want a public inquiry, and I want them held to account for what they've done. You've talked... He's, uh, he's well-known, Charles Walker, for being a massive mental health advocate. Mm -hmm. And he's been banging on in the house about the effects that this is having on kids and on uh, people's mental health in general. And the sort of reckless abandon that we've treated this subject with over the last 12 months. But he makes an interesting point about the scientists being in the media all the time. The sage scientists yeah. coming out and just appearing on Newsnight and yeah. saying, you know, and obviously the journalists are tapping them, trying to get yeah. the story. Why do you think they're doing it, though? Money. Exactly, that's what I mean. It's not, it's not to, you know, I suppose, further their scientific inquiry. It's so... See, fuck, they should be on working it. on the solving the problem, shouldn't they? Exactly. So it's for when the, all this is gone and then they can go on the speech circuit like all the rest of them. Yep. And they, instead of charging a thousand pounds, they can spend charge two thousand now or three thousand or whatever. Who'd heard of Neil Ferguson before exactly. this time last year? Exactly. Other than like his swine flu debacle, the foot and mouth debacle, every other pandemic, which is grossly over exaggerated, the, the problem would be. Let's just uh, stick in on, on Neil Ferguson. I've got an article here from 21st Century Wire. Imperial folly. Neil Ferguson has no qualification in biological sciences. As it turns out, Ferguson holds no formal qualifications at all in biological sciences. Not as a microbiologist, a virologist, nor as an epidemiologist or biological statistician. Instead, he received his Bachelor of Arts degree in physics from Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, <laughs> followed by a, d a doctorate in philosophy in theoretical physics, 1994, from Linacre College, Oxford. So claims in the media, which repeatedly describe Ferguson as, Ferguson as one of the country's top epidemiologists, are quite misleading. While Ferguson has worked on lots of computer modelling and abstract simulations for various epidemics and wildly inaccurate on many of them, he's not at all qualified to warrant any authoritative cachet in the field of biological science. He shouldn't be anyway, yet he is. It's a strange situation, to say the least. As with so many things in media and government, it seems nobody bothered to check. Uh, in an interview on the BBC's Life Scientific, Ferguson conceded to not having an A-level in biology. As far as publicly available information is accurate, he appears to have no formal training in computer modelling, medicine or epidemiology either. Wow, I'm more qualified on these matters. <laughs> So am I. Qualified. He's a modeler. This is the thing, isn't it? He's referred to as an epidemiologist, but he's a modeler. Is it? Is, that's what I understood him to be. He's a physicist. Well, math. Well, yeah, but he kind of does mathematical models from that. Like Tony Hart. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he does pretty bad ones as well. I think it was the swine, oh. the bird flu. I think he said that we could expect something like two hundred million deaths. <laughs> well, he always He's talking about birds. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to always err on the side of caution, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> mm, I think it was fifteen hundred deaths. 
So yeah, it was out of by a factor of a thousand. All right, okay. But more, more. But yeah. Uh, anyway, moving on with uh, unheard. You know, I I often rail on politicians for their lack of principles and okay. whatnot. And um, but I think Charles Walker. I think we found one, a principled politician. There might actually be one in the chamber. Uh, let's see, clip two. How do you both feel that the Chinese involvement has shown itself? The whole idea of confining people to their homes by government decree was created in China and it was then adopted internationally after that. Do you feel that had this virus emerged in France or North America, we would ever have even considered lockdowns? Uh, Sir Charles? Well, I don't know how to answer that question, but I will will say that I've voted against every lockdown that there's been a vote, vote held on, on the basis that A, I will not criminalise protests, and B, I will not criminalise parents seeing their children and children seeing their parents. It is fundamental. It is as fundamental as that. I will not criminalise parents for seeing their children and children seeing their parents. And when I hear the Secretary of State for Health and others saying, well, you can hug your family at some point in May, it absolutely makes my blood boil. I I just cannot, I, I can't understand what we have done. We have robbed people of their agency. We've robbed people of the ability to make their own decisions. People are anxious and upset and desperate because they don't feel they have any control um, in their lives and events in their lives. And, and as David said, you know what? It's not so much the week in the sunshine that matters. It's the fact that you can plan to take the week in the sunshine, that you can book something that's for you. And I, look, every time you ask me these questions, I come back and at the end of my response, I'm almost speechless because I'm just incredibly angry. And angry is not a good, mo- uh, it's, not a good it's not a good place to be being angry, but I just, I am so angry. Very forthright. Mm, I like him. Yeah, uh, sort of. Yeah, he seems to have a spine. You know, I mean, he's a backbencher. Maybe he's in a safe seat, but um, he's speaking out against the government, his government. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the, what surprised me is that he's, he's in such a minority. It seems. And they do talk in the interview. He asks both of them about their respective parties, the Conservatives and the Labours. Are you hearing dissent and grumblings among the party? And they both essentially say yes, very quietly. Right. Is he in the coronavirus research group? He's not. With the others? He's not. No. Because no. I think that's that's the only sort of dissenting group I've heard of. Like a coordinated... Yeah, yeah, is there about 60 of them, 60 Tories? And the idea is if the uh, this coronavirus reset group and Labour voted together, I think that would probably, that might um, get rid of the majority, wouldn't it? Oh, I see, yeah, yeah. But we can't rely on Keith, can we? <laughs> Keith Unfortunately Starmer. not. No. 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 Well, bravo, bravo, I say, Charles Walker. Yeah, can he not defect to Labour and become the leader and we can all vote for him? (laughs) The thing is, um, it's not just in the House where they're in a minority. In the general public, they are. The the majority of the general public are... Pro-lockdown. Pro-lockdown. But this is the thing, is is there's a lot of government messaging that's still ongoing that needs to be unpicked. 
How do you mean unpick uh, what messaging? Well, the, how dangerous everything is. That, you know. Yeah, they talk, the, virus, it, it, the situation. It talks about this and about the daily conferences. And how, because they've been frightening people, I can't remember the words he used, but because they've been scurrying the country witless for the last year nearly, they need to use the daily briefings to try and change the tone and try and have a bit (laughs) of a positive tone and fucking cajole people out of their own fucking houses. Exactly. Because we've just got a fucking, it's like Stockholm Syndrome. We're a nation of people with Stockholm Syndrome. It is now, yeah. Fucking unreal, man. Boris was talking about people will be back in their offices in a couple of months' time. Uh-huh. I'm like, I, I don't said think that, it will, mate. I said that in September. Do you remember in September? Was it September? And well, he tried to, yeah, he was, he was encouraging said, people like, going back yeah, to work. Yeah, Manje had been um, moaning to him that we were going to have to close loads of shops. So he said, right, okay, I'll say something. And he was like, well, you have to go back. Everyone has to go back to the offices now. It's, you have to go, otherwise, you know, everywhere's going to be desolate. Um, well, so be it. I mean, people have seen the other side of the coin now. Yeah, this uh, paradigm of, of bustling city centres uh, during the working week is probably going to, you know, it's going to start to fade away by the looks of it. That's the normal that's not coming back. The commute, the, the bustling city centres, like you say. And so that is going to have effect on property prices in these areas. Yes. And Who owns all that property? Government donors. <laughs> and Just uh, it back. <laughs> this is where Agenda Twenty One comes in. They come in, buy all the offices blocks, office blocks, convert them into flats, move into there, cheap social housing. Here's your UBI. You go and live in the city centre and uh, you're not allowed in these green areas because they're protected for environmental reasons. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) All right, last clip from uh, Unheard. And uh, the question Freddie asked Charles Walker, what would you say to the Tory leadership? I'd say this, for the past two months, the only place that a group of people can gather together and dissent about their freedoms being removed without fear of arrest is the chamber of the House of Commons. That is not a country I, I want to live in. And the fact that, we've, that we have done this. So the only place where voices can be raised collectively is in the House of Commons. If I gathered on the streets with four or five of my constituents to do it in a peaceful way, I would face arrest. It's shocking. It's utterly shocking. So I'm sorry, I haven't got much to say to the Prime Minister. I just, I'm saying it to you. Charles, goes back to his original principle, I will not criminalise means of protest. Yeah. It's a fundamental right. Well, it was... It was a fundamental right. It's not anymore. That's been demonstrated. We've been taking that right for granted in the recent past, and it's been stripped of us. And it will be up to the government whether that right is returned to us. Mm -hmm. And you have no way other than sending an email to your MP. You have no other way of... Well, you have no way of collectively demonstrating. It's amazing. Legally. You know, I know Piers Corbyn gets some flack, but he's out there every weekend getting arrested. <laughs> Bring it on. He gets arrested every weekend. 
Did he really? Yeah. 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 He said, I'm not having it. You're not removing my right to protest. Fine, arrest me. He's like 80 years old. <laughs> there was a story this week about the fines, about the prosecutions not sticking. Did you hear about that? Well, I'm sure I read something. It was in the Daily Mail from a, a solicitor saying that it was unenforceable. The conviction was... The fine. The fine was unenforceable. This was a while ago, but I can't remember the the ins and outs of it. Oh, this was this week. There was some numbers came out. uh, So many thousand uh, things had been thrown out. Convictions or prosecutions had been thrown out. Because it's just a farce. They've not defined what local is. They've just said stay local and not not defined it. So that's, without that definition, you can't. That's I mean, what it was. Sorry, yeah, that's what it. The, the, basically, if you have a decent, if you well, this is the other thing, isn't it? You're not going to be able to afford a decent solicitor, but they could argue on your behalf, define be, that. Yeah, there'll be class lawsuits being put together. Class action. There certainly is in Canada. Right. And in the States, and I think in the UK, I think Simon Dolan on Twitter is one of the main guys behind trying to force legal action against the government. Good. We'll see where it, where it leads. All right, do you, want to, uh, do you want to move on to vaccines, vaccine safety? Yeah. The Queen, yeah. the Queen has come out. Oh, she uh, has, hasn't she? Yeah, it's uh, an unusual move, isn't it, for the Queen mm-hmm. to come out and comment on health issues and, and personal issues like this. But, uh, yeah, she did a Zoom call with some NHS NHS staff and uh, she spoke out this week on the vaccine issue. It's a little clippy here. Well, once you've had the vaccine, you have a feeling of, uh, you know, you're, you're protected, which is, I think, very important. And as far as I can make out, it was quite harmless. Pretty harmless. I wasn't sure whether I should yeah. stand up and salute them, but you know, I kept it cool. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I think she's pretty safe because they, well, she's pretty brave to have the vaccine because I don't think they tested it on reptiles, did they? <laughs> she did go blind though, didn't she? So, <laughs> how's, uh, how's Prince Philip doing? Uh, he's now. <laughs> Now, now what? You throw this out there. I th- I think he might be dead. Ooh. Why? From, uh, from the vaccine. Yeah. No. Second obvi- dose. Obviously. <laughs> Only because Charles went in last week and he, he came out and he was visibly upset. I don't know if if um, no, he's, he's probably not dead. I take that back. But I think I don't think he's coming out of hospital. I forgot, Ben. You're like a royal com- correspondent. You're a die-hard monarchist. You've got all this information. How? What was Charles's frame of mind? You're like Jenny Bond. Tortured. <laughs> In the car, he looked. He looked like he he had been weeping. But I asked. To be fair, I've seen about forty-five seconds of news on this over the last week, and I've made I've made my assumption already that that he's either he's either gone already or he's he's about to. He's Although, not... the drawing out a bit long. I thought this last week when they said he's going to be in over the weekend. Um, and he's still in, and he's going to be in for a bit longer now. So I think it's it's gone too far for him to... I think he would have had to announce, you know, um, what is it, fourth bridge down before, um, before now. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, no one is going to trust whatever the official line is on this. Right. Okay. Yeah. If he if he pops his clogs. Yeah. 
and he's just had his vac- vaccine. People are going to put the two together. They're never going to. Yeah. They're never going to say it's COVID. Are they? they? Yeah, they've said he's in hospital. It's not COVID related. No. It's, but to be fair, he has been in hospital. I think before COVID with like bladder infections because that's what happens to old people who don't drink enough. Yeah, and he's a thousand years old. Exactly. Yeah, he's a mm. thousand year old reptile. Exactly. Nephilim. <laughs> it's a soul hunter. Oh God. A skin crawler. <laughs> anyway, get well soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. We uh we played a clip the other week from Dr. John Campbell. Do you remember from YouTube? He's got nine hundred thousand odd subs and uh Oh yeah, play- yeah, 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 yeah. He did some uh, he did a video on vitamin D extolling the benefits. Yeah. Um as a side note, he's um he's it did in this recent video unrelated to the clip I have, he um he took two um prick tests to send off for his vitamin D levels. Okay. Uh one, test for it now. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little prick. And uh, he did the tests one after the other, sent one off, one went off to the NHS, one went off to a private lab. And the results, I think one was 22 nanomoles per mil and one was 33 nanomoles per mil. <laughs> so about a 50% difference there. But he never mentioned, he, he sort of said, oh, I don't understand why they've done, why this has happened. But uh, as a side note, he's um, up, upping his vitamin D dosage to 4,000 units a day now. Yeah, but listen to the Our Mission Condition podcast. That's right. Didn't he? Because he was taking two to 3,000 units. How much is a prig test, incidentally? And could could he have done more data points? Or can can we do more data points? Or, I don't know, like send it to 100 labs and see what the spread of difference is. I've no idea what it costs. He didn't say. Maybe we'll need crowdfunding for that. I would say so. Hmm. Um but the video, that wasn't the point of the video. He, he did a, a video on the post-vaccination deaths um, because, as we know, uh, what we have the yellow card system here in the UK and in America, it's, sure, yeah. it's VAERS, vaccine, something, AE, or reaction. Yeah, they have a whole court system over there, don't they? We, we talked about it about 100 episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, they have the vaccine courts, yeah, for paying out people who have vaccine inj- in injuries. But the VAERS is the reporting system. Yeah, the RS stands for reporting system. Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. That's what it stands for. Uh-huh, yeah. And um, some people are getting alarmed because there are being deaths recorded. And, um, you know, John makes the point that we're vaccinating old people and sort of by the law of statistics... They're going to die. All people are going to die. Yeah, so I've just got a little clip here. Have hundreds of people died just after taking the vaccine? Yes. Does that concern me? No, because people in these older and vulnerable groups do leave us anyway. Uh, Just listen for the word in here. It's very interesting. As part of the natural cycle of life. If you want to put it this way, they died after the vaccine or with the vaccine, not from the vaccine. <laughs> what does that remind you of? <laughs> Died with the vaccine, with. not of the vaccine. Mm. Mm. It could have said they died within 28 days 
of having, of having a vaccine. A vaccine. <laughs> he, he doesn't seem to see the logical paradox that he is in because he's completely mainstream, pro-lockdown, pro-mass, telling us how scary this is every day on YouTube. Cases, 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 deaths, deaths, deaths. COVID is killing people. Tosu mob. I wasn't bad, though. That was good, mob. Yeah. Alas. <laughs> Doesn't work. Uh, yeah, so I thought that was interesting. Hmm. 100% of people who don't get COVID will die. Fact. Yeah, we seem to be focused on one cause of death at the detriment of every other cause of death. That's the, the issue. Yeah. One, I mean, of, one of the many issues. <laughs> There is some interesting information coming out regarding vaccines and mortality. Um, there's a quantitative analyst called Joel Smalley. He's a data scientist, and he's been doing some modelling, going through the official statistics, and he's found some really peculiar things in the death numbers since the vaccine rollout. There may be another explanation. Mm. But uh, the analysis he's done shows that once the vaccine rollout started in the over-80s, there was a spike in COVID deaths in the over-80s. Then it was rolled out for the over-70s, there was a spike of death in the over-70s. And then three weeks later, when it was rolled out in Scotland, there was a spike in COVID deaths immediately after the rollout started. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but something to look out for, possibly. Who knows? I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Is that COVID-19 news? I don't think so. No. I don't know. I mean, the, the problem is with the vaccine is that, to me, the safety has been compromised to a degree. Well, yeah, because they haven't tested it like they normally would. No. Um, let's remind ourselves what Bill Gates said back in the spring about the vaccine. When will there be a vaccine? People like myself and Tony Fauci are saying 18 months. If everything went perfectly, we could do slightly better than that. But there will be a trade-off. We'll have less safety testing than we typically would have. And so governments will have to decide, you know, do they indemnify the companies? And That's very important. Make sure the companies yeah. don't get sued. Obviously. Step one really say let's let's go out with this uh when it's we just don't have the time to do what we normally do you can run into safety issues so we're going to have to take something that usually takes five or six years and get it done in 18 months if you want to wait and see if a side effect shows up two years later uh that takes two years yeah that's what i am sort of leading towards doing <laughs> precautionary principle isn't it it's about balancing risk. You know, if you're if you're in a very vulnerable category, your balance of risk is is radically different from mine. It's true. So um, that's the issue for me. 
Ben's like, fuck it, no, jab me. I want it. I want the experimental stuff. Bring it on. Yeah, what's the worst that could happen? Going fertile. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) Oh, dear. Even Uh, more infertile. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) All right, let's move away from the vaccine. How long have conspiracy theorists like me been banging on about the PCR test? I thought you were a conspiracy analyst. Yeah. Same thing. Come on, give it a programme. About the, what, the theory test? Driving theory test. The driving theory test. The PCR test. I don't Uh, think people have the right grasp of what a conspiracy theory is. No, it's used as a term to... Yeah, it's a catch-all. Yeah. It's a derogatory term. I know, that's right. It seems to be at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, it's undermine people. Are you taking it back? Yeah, <laughs> reclaiming it. <laughs> yeah, the PCR test. Uh, the Lancet came out recently with an article. Uh, this is from The Lancet, 17th of February 2021, and the science is catching up with conspiracy theories. <laughs> Clarifying the evidence, I'll put a link in the show notes. Clarifying the evidence on SARS-CoV-2 antigen rapid testing in public health responses to COVID-19. I'll just read this. Testing for SARS-CoV-2 is central to COVID-19 management and has relied on quantitative reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, PCR technology. PCR seeks the genetic code of the virus from nose or throat swabs, (coughs) anal if you're in China, (laughs) Uh, and amplifies it over 30 to 40 cycles. Uh, a lot of labs are 45 in the UK, last time I checked. And it doubles each cycle, ena- enabling even minuscule, potentially single copies to be detected. PCR is thus, a powerful, is thus a powerful clinical test, specifically when a patient is or was recently infected with SARS-CoV-2. Fragments of RNA can linger for weeks after infectious virus has been cleared often in people without symptoms or known exposures. So it can pick up viral traces weeks after exposure, which again ties into the the case numbers and the fatalities. The whole house of cards is built on this, the PCR test. However, for public health measures, another approach is needed. Testing to help slow the spread of SARS-CoV-2 asks not whether someone has RNA in their nose from earlier infection, but whether they're infectious today. It is a net loss to the health, social and economic well-being of communities if post-infectious individuals test positive and have to isolate for 10 days. In our view, current PCR testing is therefore not the appropriate gold standard for evaluating a SARS-CoV-2 public health test. Mm. Clear enough. Yeah. Didn't the uh, the inventor of the test say it's not for? Yes. Not for um, it's not a diagnostic test. Diagnostic is yeah. Yeah, Carrie Mullis. He went in a bit of a trippy Buddhist thing, didn't he? You can find anything and, in anything. Yeah, but you know we could still listen to him. Anyway, he died, yeah. he died in mysterious circumstances. Did he? Yeah, in 2019. Pandemic. Ooh. Healthy older gentleman, surfed every day. Yeah. Got suicided. Two to the head. <laughs> I don't know. I think I don't know what the uh, what the circumstances of his death were, but it's Segway a shame. Off a cliff. It would be very interesting to have him talk, uh, to have his voice 
Yeah. Because I don't yeah. think he would be... He won't be down with it. Well. I'll just finish this quickly. Uh, most people infected with SARS-CoV-2 are contagious for four to eight days. Specimens are generally not found to contain culture-positive, potentially contagious virus beyond day nine after the onset of symptoms, with most transmission occurring before day five. So that's where the, you'll know, Ben, they take the sample, they can put it in a culture and they can actually develop the virus replicating, thus it being a replicating virus which is contagious. So right. after, after um, four to eight days, that's generally not, not found. This timing fits with the observed patterns of virus transmission, usually two days before to day five after symptom onset which led public health agencies to recommend a 10-day isolation period. The short window of transmissibility contrasts with the median 22 to 33 days of PCR positivity, longer with severe infections. So all these cases that we're getting, vast majority aren't infectious. In fact, it says this suggests that 50 to 75% of the time an individual who is PCR positive, is likely post-infectious. Picking a base of dead virus that the body has already dealt with. Yeah, three quarters, 50 to 75% of your tests, positive tests, it's already been and gone. And same for the deaths then, isn't it? Same with the deaths. Same for everything. It's just we spent an extraordinary amount of money. (laughs) We can't go back. And that's the problem now. Mm. Once SARS-CoV-2 replication has been controlled by the immune system, RNA levels detectable by PCR on respiratory secretions fall to very low levels when individuals are much less likely to infect others. The remaining RNA copies can take weeks, occasionally months to clear, during which time PCR remains positive. <laughs> it's a fucking scam. <laughs> it's a farce, and it's all built on the PCR test. I'm not saying that people aren't dying and we don't have excess deaths, mm-hmm. but I don't think I think the justification for locking down whole populations based on this test it seems that it's not suitable for the job. Mm, so a lot of people saying that now. I'm saying it in the Lancet now. Mm. Mm. I mean, there are moves to get this lateral flow testing going, aren't there? Yeah, we all do. We get two from Monday. Actually, we can pick them up. We get two tests a week. All parents of children get two tests a week for testing the the household. Really? Yes. This that was in the news today. From Monday, you can collect two tests a week if you have school aged children um, for you know checking them, checking them for COVID. No, it's true. Doing that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I believe you, but I'm not doing it. No, I know you have to go and pick it up and drop it off somewhere. If they're dro- if they're bringing it to your door, I might consider it. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Um, how's it work? Is it like a pregnancy test? It's a one. Of, it's a lateral flow one, so it's spit on a thing and put it in a, a like a serology jobby, and it goes up and does it. Yeah, like a pregnancy test. I should have just said yes. Yeah, so you, you get like one line for negative, two lines for positive, or whatever it says. So you get your result at home. Yes. You know, there's, there's no sending off. Oh, oh, don't know. Un- unknown, because there was talk of things being picked up. Okay. 
If you I would have thought with that, it's a bit like... Uh, no, I just remembered it now. It's a bit like, a, you know, it's got a hole for the, for the juice and then a line with the, the indicator in. So wishy-washy, isn't he? I think it sticks yeah. to, to being royal correspondent. I don't, I don't need <laughs> You don't need details. No. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, this is a fun one. What happens if you're a South African woman and you're doing your shopping and you get caught without your face mask? Are you beaten in the street? A woman in South Africa avoided getting thrown out of a pick-and-pay supermarket by using her panties as a mask. Smartphone camera footage caught the bizarre interaction in which the store guard asked the maskless woman, who was waiting with her cart of groceries in the checkout line, to put on a face mask or leave the store. Having no mask handy, the resourceful renegade objects before pausing, presumably the moment a light bulb went off in her head. In the next moment, the cheeky customer can be seen reaching up beneath her paisley printed skirt, then pulling her black thong underwear down her legs and up to her face, where she placed it in such a way as to cover her nose and mouth. Think I. I hope it wasn't a shitty day. <laughs> oh, God. Good, you can watch the video. It's quite funny. She's challenged by the, the supermarket checkout girl. Sorry, can't say, I can't save you if you're not wearing a face mask. She's from Glasgow. Came at the frock. And uh, oh, she just reaches down under her, her ankle-length dress, whips out the thong, doths the thong, the thong <laughs> onto her face, and uh, there you have it. Problem solved. Cool. So there you go. That was quite good. Well, easy. I'll have to make sure I'm carrying some panties <laughs> around with me if I don't have a mask. Exactly. Yeah. My uh, son has started referring to his uh, trousers as panties. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Where are my panties, Daddy? <laughs> what, is he 14? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about 10 years ago. I saw, you, I saw your mum the other day. Where, she, where was she hobbling off to? Oh, she was like a frigging... Second trip to town that day. Cheetah, yeah, yeah, she was on her way to the bus stop. Fucking hell, she moved. Crossing, a... crossing Main Road. I, I think, think the... yeah. A gazelle. It's, a, it's, like, it's like momentum in a train. <laughs> she has to get up to speed and then she can't stop. Otherwise she collapse. Yeah. Oh, she's definitely moving well. Mm. Anal swabs. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about anal swabs last week. We did? Yes, and uh, it's caused a bit of a diplomatic emergency this week. And Beijing has denied on Thursday asking U.S. diplomats to take anal swab tests for COVID-19. <laughs> U.S. media outlet Vice earlier cited a State Department official as saying the test was given in error. The State Department, in an email to Reuters, Oops. said they are committed to guaranteeing the safety and security of American diplomats and their families. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian has refuted the claims, <laughs> saying China has never required U.S. diplomats to take such tests. There was an article in Vice quoting a State Department representative spokesperson saying uh, a lot of our diplomats 
from the new Biden administration. Anally swapped. <laughs> Welcome to crying. China. Bend over. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, uh-huh. isn't it? Don't shove it up there. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they did like the nasal swab first. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I know someone who <laughs> pre pre op when you have to go in for your MRSA swab and he's <laughs> they said swab your perineum and he oh. shoved it up the ass <laughs> <laughs> I didn't said I didn't know I didn't know was it was it Neil Ferguson that's about the level of biological knowledge he probably has um, and it was a bit brown when it over. Oh, my word. Imagine what they thought. Imagine have it, which way they thought you were wiping to have a brown, a shit-stained perineum. Oh, it's always <laughs> circular. <laughs> oh, dirty. Have you shit your pants? <laughs> Why? What's the MRS? Yeah, is that a thing now? Before you go into operation, you have to have a test for MRSA. Sometimes, yeah, I don't know. Do you not remember that was the last crisis that, that went away? Pre-op, yeah, I've known, I've known a few people um, have to have an MRSA swab. Yeah. Oh well. Oh well. Uh, moving away from COVID news, but but uh, staying with the CCP. Uh, Malin, our mate Malin Baker did a. His weekly friend of the show, friend of the show, Malin Baker, producer for episode one seven three, did a video on uh, his sort of weekly news roundup video on a Friday, and um, he did. A, it was this video was sort of focused on the upcoming online harms bill, which is coming before the UK Parliament. Um, but he had some news in a similar sort of censorship thread from China. Still, since we followed China's lead on how to lock societies down in the face of a pandemic, I suppose you could follow their approach here as well. This week it was announced that the Chinese government has come up with new rules for Chinese bloggers. Beginning this week, bloggers and influencers need to have a government-approved credential in order to be able to publish on certain subjects. If you wanted to do anything really dodgy, like, you know, talk about politics, that was already the case. But now it extends to things like health and economics, education and the judiciary. One blogger, Ma Jialin, an international relations professor who has two million followers on Weibo, announced that he had been given a wide range of topics he was no longer allowed to talk about. As an international affairs researcher and a columnist, it looks like I can only go the route of entertainment, food and beverage now, he said. It's like a professor of geopolitics and is restricted to talking about food and beverages. Fucking hell. It's wild, isn't it? Yeah. It's not the way we want to go. Well, yeah, we've already copied them once, haven't we? Yep. Yeah. Uh, you the know fu- about food and beverages, guys. <laughs> oh, a bit more about coffee today than I did yesterday. Oh, there we go. Well, we'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. I think I might have had a... What do they call it? The Native Americans... I've been on like oh, a vision quest. A peace pipe. <laughs> like a vision quest this afternoon. <laughs> the amount of coffee I've yeah. drunk. <laughs> I'm in touch with my... 
my spirit, spirit. animal. <laughs> I was going to say that. You said Why it. Why you just talk? I know, I know. <laughs> oh, well, we're still podcasting. <laughs> <coughs> uh, yeah, the focus of Mal's uh, video was the um, the hate crime bill in Scotland particularly. You know, Scotland's <laughs> government's been in the process of imploding this week. Oh, yeah. With uh, Nicola Sturgeon and former leader Alex Salmond and all sorts of Game of Thrones-style political wrangling yeah. going on behind closed doors, stabbing each other in the back and all the rest of it, as politicians do and have done for thousands of years. And continue um, to do so. And continue. Yeah, and while this was going on, they uh, sort of snuck in some changes to the online harms bill, uh, hate crime bill, rather, and it's been causing some consternation amongst uh, free speech advo- advocates. Um, yeah, so uh, Malin's got a, an update of what's uh, happening to this hate crime bill north of the border. None of this was so distracting. The VSMP weren't able to spend time tightening their definition of what does or doesn't constitute transphobia. This rather matters because they're in the process of passing hate crime legislation that has a number of people concerned at its scope. One of the things that will identify you as a transphobe in the eyes of the SNP is this. Deliberately misgendering someone or using phrases or language to suggest their gender identity is not valid. For example, referring to a trans woman as a biological man. This strikes me as somewhat problematic, since it seems not only to conflate one's biological sex, which, you know, has gametes and chromosomes involved, with your chosen gender, but also makes the factual observation of biological reality a hateful act. Does this definition extend to any critical commentary about the supposed 112 genders touted by some as representing the valid gender universe? If someone suggested, for instance, that the definition of astagender as someone whose gender feels bright and celestial was made up garbage, which, you know, I think there would be an arguable case, does the SNP think there's a valid debate or does it bring the full scale of its disapproval by law to bear? This uh, new hate crime legislation is going to apply in people's houses as well. So if you have a dinner party in your own house and you call someone, you make reference to someone being a biological male, Mm. um, that will be a hate crime. Could be prosecuted as such. So, for example, um, uh, a woman who has transition no sorry a man that's transitioned to be a woman um and you have to refer to that person as a woman but they've got a prostate and they get prostate cancer it's a bit weird that isn't it if you're just talking like scientifically and biologically new frontiers this is my truth tell me yours yeah i just find it a bit weird postmodernism i don't you know people can change genders you know have bits lopped off have things added on um i just don't know whether or not uh taking it a bit far well it's this it's when you start putting legal restraints on speech is the issue isn't it i think so yeah it's where we run into uh difficulties we don't have a, a First Amendment, you see. No. For protecting our rights in this way. 
you know, but we'll see. We'll see how, do, how it develops north of the border. It's quite strange. It's quite, they're, they're full. They're pretty woke, aren't they, up there? The SNP. Yeah. This reminds me of Brett Weinstein and the, this stuff happening in Canada. Because I know Canada is similarly, you know, very woke. Uh, it's uh, America, Evergreen College. I was in America. Yeah. So, but Canada are, aren't they? Famously. Yeah, they've got a black um, president, haven't they? Or prime minister. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Just black, so. <laughs> sorry. Right, yeah. Sorry. That's the exception that proves the real. <laughs> well, sticking with uh, America and wokeness, the uh, Oregon Department of Education has gone, gone full woke this week. Get this story. The Oregon Department of Education promoting a training program for teachers that seeks to undo racism in math. The Pathway to Equitable Math Instruction Toolkit explains how white supremacy allegedly infiltrates math classrooms, arguing the concept of mathematics being purely objective is unequivocally false, meaning two plus two does not equal four, and teaching it is even much less so, upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers, perpetuate objectivity, as well as fear of open conflict. I'm exhausted. Here to react, former Vanderbilt University professor, Dr. Carol Swain. Yeah, it is exhausting. This is one having a laugh, like, uh, glo- globally, universally. Funny you mention that. Guess who, who funds this, this, uh, this uh, uh, what do you call it, initiative? Neil Ferguson, just to bring us back around. Close, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Ah, Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill. He's one of the main funders of this. Surely he can't agree with that. No. You're saying he's not woke? Probably not. No. Well, I don't know why he's paying for it then. Because he's no idea what he Tax refundable, or tax deductible, rather. Yeah, so maths isn't objective. You heard it here first. Two plus two does not necessarily equal four. Fuck's sake. What is your lived experience of the maths? <laughs> How does two feel? Yeah. Yeah, I've said this before. There is, there is, obviously, I think there is a benefit in discussing people's lived experience. Absolutely. In, yeah, yeah. But, you know, again, it's just too much. It's too much. Things don't have to apply everywhere. All things do not have to apply everywhere. Surely that's the whole point of lived experience. Yeah. Yeah, otherwise everyone's lived experience would be exactly the same, right? I mean, it suggests that there aren't universal truths that we can all agree on. (laughs) Which is patently nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, because two plus two... The earth is round. It's like, I'm pretty sure there's a guy who wrote a book, um, like a, 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 it's like 500 pages long or something, just explain, explaining phys, uh, philosophically and mathematically why one plus one equals two. Yeah, I can believe that. Yeah. Did you hear about the book, um, what's it called? Um, when Harry Became Sally. No. It's a book written about the transgender issue when Harry became Sally. Uh, it's Amazon have removed it. A bit like the Abigail Schreier book. 
Oh, right. Which was unlisted. This is another one, yeah. It was published three years ago. Right. But they've removed it this week. What's it about? It's about when Harry became Sally. I don't know. Tell you what, though, it makes me want to read it. I know, yeah. If Amazon deem it unsuitable for my eyes, then that makes me want to read it more. It must have something to say. So, yeah, I'll check it out. I'll, I'll see if I can grab a copy. Malin is going to do a review of it <laughs> on his YouTube channel. Oh, good. Yeah. What about um, Potato Head? Oh, yeah. Mr. Um, it's just Potato Head now, isn't it? Not Mr. or Mrs. Potato Head. The story everybody's talking about this morning, that big rebrand of Mr. Potato Head, the classic children's toy now has a gender-neutral name. And this morning, as you can imagine, the reaction is pouring in. Deborah Roberts joins us now with more on this. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, Cecilia. Hasbro is joining a list of companies that are now rebranding products in an effort to be more inclusive. But when it comes to beloved toys, it doesn't always go over so well with the public. While some are applauding these efforts to make Mr. Potato Head more welcoming, others see it as overkill in an age of political correctness. Smells of publicity stunt to me, this. It does. Yeah, didn't they, like retract it almost immediately it was two tweets that were sent out I've, I've got them both somewhere no the rebrand is sticking the rebrand is sticking it is going to be changed to potato head but I think it is just a cynical marketing thing mm. publicity make it, stunt make it relevant. it's been going for over 50 years Yeah. Wow. originally he had to provide your own potato <laughs> You just got the the ears and the glasses and everything. So commercial from like the 70s. And there was some guy with a potato putting the the bits in. Yeah. Potato not included. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it, Hasbro. Yeah. I mean, they're such a cynical company. You know, look at Transformers. They make the toys and then they make the cartoon to sell the toys. I thought they made the cartoon to, and then made the toys. Nope. No, they get the line of toys first and then they build oh, the cartoon right. around it. Same with Voltron. Right. Yeah, that's what those cartoons are, just half-hour advertising campaigns. And that's why they kill. <laughs> that's why they killed Optimus Prime. Why? Plastic. They'd already sold them. They'd sold enough Optimus Prime. They needed a new leader to sell. All <laughs> oh, right, okay. Fucking hell. Like- Optimus Prime dies. Scarred me for life. <laughs> he dies. There was a, <laughs> it was a massive I outcry when it came out, 1986, I want to say. <laughs> All these young kids go to the cinema <coughs> to watch the Transformers movie and fucking 20 minutes in, the hero is killed. Like, it scarred kids for life, huh? Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, it is that bit, so. Yeah. Hey, do you know what? I was watching, uh, for some reason, she put The Princess Bride on today. It's on Amazon that, Prime. Is that the one that you, you like? Me? The chi- is that the children's film? Uh, I wouldn't call it a children's film. It's like a medieval fantasy comedy. Yeah, you're thinking of Princess Diaries, aren't you, Matt? No, I'm thinking. I, I think I tried to watch it once, but I never watched it as a child, so I don't. It's not. I don't so anyway, it's a Rob Reiner film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got Carrie Ells. 
as men the in tights. Yeah, from Men in Tights. Um he's the um the Dread Pirate Roberts. It's got uh, Mandy Patinkin in it from that Spooks American show Homeland. Uh, yeah. He's in it. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That's his catchphrase. It's got Andre the Giant in it. And uh, mm. I was watching it today, and there's a scene early on in the film where the Dread Pirate Roberts, who is a masked pirate, is mm. fighting Andre the Giant. And I had to clip this. Why are you wearing a mask? Why are you burn um, Andre the Giant's asking him why he wears a mask. Why are you wearing a mask? Were you burned by acid or something like that? Oh no, it's just they're terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. <gasps> That's a bit spooky. Origin. Oh no, is this is the whole movie going to come true? Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, that, that's what they call predictive programming in conspiracy circles. It is. It is. Like the Simpsons. Simpsons predicted everything. Yeah. Mm. Allegedly. All right, I've got one more, uh, one more funny thing. Fuck, I don't know if I can take any more. We haven't done anything really funny tonight. It's been one of them, hasn't it? Too much COVID news. Well, there's been a few funny things. Have we not just done like three, four funny clips? Some anal swabbing. Young men out there, got some uh, words of wisdom for you from a 95-year-old guy here who's been around the block. And the moral of the story is, listen, don't over-fuck yourself. <laughs> that's a hustle. Yeah. I'm 95 years old. You're 95 that's years right. old. You that's look right. good for 95. That's because I don't run behind big asses and titties. That'll kill you. Y'all young men, y'all be screwing all these holes out here. That's why y'all come up with arthritis and rheumatism. Your eyesight go bad. Your hair starts coming out. When you uh, 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 overfuck yourself, you bring arthritis on your skin. Every time you drop that seed in her, yeah. your bone marrow and all that stuff from your head to your toe goes inside of her. And when you, when you have intercourse with your girlfriend, who always falls asleep? first there you go yeah don't wow. don't over fuck yourself it's so clear now <laughs> is that where you're going wrong <laughs> over fucking no <laughs> oh my god read them and understand them can you can you put um drop your seed in here <laughs> Put that for the soundboard, please. Yep. I'll, uh, yeah, good. remind me. Good. Okay. Yeah. That's good. <coughs> I, uh, <coughs> I touched the dog's dick. Oh, no. Touched the dog's dick this week. <laughs> What's up, Ben? Flashbacks. Yeah, I was. Uh, he was. He was sort of led on me, purring as he does, and I was stroking his belly. Uh, there was like his what? His belly. He's his stroking belt. his penis. There was like uh, me at one end of the couch and the missus at the other, and Zeus is in the middle, and I was just rubbing his belly, and I was just rubbing, and just went, "Oh, what was that?" And just looked at her, and and the missus went, "You just touched his dick." <laughs> 
<laughs> but, uh, fortunately, it wasn't the lipstick. No, it was it was the furry sheath. <laughs> the furry sheath from, that surrounds the stick. The lipstick. Come on. <laughs> I got on, got on from work on Friday, and he, he came to greet me with a bonnet. Oh, no, what, what's he been shagging? He was just excited to see me. <laughs> he had a bone. <laughs> look how happy I am, look. It's been oh, fixed. for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fixed, so there shouldn't be any leg humping. Well, it wouldn't be yeah. leg, it'd be more like belly button humping, I guess. Because he's no Ooh. balls. He's no balls, no. Taking his balls. They're taking him. His seed. <laughs> his seed <laughs> has been removed. Yeah. What have you done this week, Ben? You touched any dog's dicks? No, no, it's been quite one for uh, dog dick touching this week. <laughs> Just, uh, well, I went out today, locally, on, on the motorcycle to do some essential shopping. That was quite good. You went into a shop? Not on a motorbike. Do you not go out into the shops anymore? Yeah, for essential shopping only, within a local distance to my home, where I live at. What do you buy? Uh, eggs, milk, bread. <laughs> I spoke to a milkman yesterday. That was sort of more interesting than not speaking to a milkman. Is that um, the uh, the only social contact you've had since March? <laughs> Talking yeah, to the milkman. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Are you not getting the message? I thought it was be aware. I stay alert. Stay alert. Tosu Mizu Lab. Tosu Lizu Mob. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, one. Oh, I wish we could vaccinate thing. against stupidity. <laughs> what do you want to go? Let <laughs> me go. Is it arm time? You fucking have to go. It's half ten. I don't care. Okay. Not working tomorrow. Oh, oh well, no, no, I wonder why we go. just kept going on and yeah. on and on. <laughs> hey, just look, listen, look. <laughs> because we're getting bored and we want to have fun. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Hey. Uh, no, they can't. This was the vice chair's here. I take charge. It's me. <laughs> I'm the vice chair. You have no authority here, Armish Matt. You have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. Armish Matt, even. <laughs> You're going to have to overdub it. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. All right. If she, I think that meeting would have gone a lot easier if she'd have read the standing orders. And understood them. And understood them, yeah, that's the key. <laughs> yeah. Fucking vegan. Fucking vegan. Right then. Should we do one into the night? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You gonna do yes, let's and do some chest feeding. Chest feeding. <laughs> Who's saying that? <laughs> it's uh, Ben. Ben Shapiro. Shapiro. Yeah. Chest feeding. <laughs> All right then. Should we go then? Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's. Right. Robbie Robertson. Tomorrow. Who's what? It's going to be sunny tomorrow. Spring is upon us. So, uh, ben. Ben. Yeah. It's time to go. Stop. Why? <laughs> Just say bye. 
Why you started another conversation? <laughs> Fuck's sake. Fuck's sake. Vote yeah. for Gammons. Vote for Gammons. Yeah. <laughs> Robbie Robertson next week from Out of the Blank podcast. It's going to be great. Yeah, excellent. It's going to be all over the map. Who knows what we'll be talking about, but it should be funny and interesting. Good stuff. Yeah. Don't forget to become a producer, you fucks. Oh. And the order, and, 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 and that increases the total vaccine. Uh, right, we'll sign off. See you next week. Con, Con forever. Sunshine. Praise Chapel on you. Good. Shin Shuen Kwai Le, Chao Bei Ge Da Ja, Ba Nien Le. Like a judgment day and terminating. Like. Order in the United.